Hey, are you here? Uh, 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 look, I'm just checking. You have to be here before you can listen to the Paul Leslie Hour. And we're ready for you. So, today we got a tape for you that's got some years on it. Goes back to early 2000s, when Paul E. Leslie was first beginning his radio adventures. Now, someone he played from the very first episode is one of those very special singer-songwriter guitarists, Scott Kirby. Oh, yeah, and a storyteller, and a traveler, and sailor. Scott Kirby's got some very devoted fans, too. Paul prides himself on the people he's turned on to Scott's music through the years. Hey, ask him about it sometime. Now, these days, Scott Kirby has around 10 albums on a prestigious record label, Little Flock Music. Scott Kirby's a real road warrior, does between 100 and 150 shows a year, including places all around the U.S. and Canada and Ireland. You know, when you meet someone and think, well, he must be an interesting person, that's the effect that Scott Kirby has on someone. And then he starts to sing his great songs. Hey, what can I say? You're going to like Scott Kirby. He's on the road, too, so check out www.scottkirby.com. Just a quick announcement. You can help the Paul Leslie Hour. All you need to do is visit www.thepaulleslie.com slash support. And we thank you for listening and supporting. So, you're here. I'm here. Paul's here. So let's hear that interview from back when. It's here. It is our pleasure to welcome singer-songwriter Scott Kirby, an artist that we have been playing since the very beginning of our program, from the very first episode. He's been requested by many listeners, and we finally have him as a guest my pleasure to welcome Mr. Scott Kirby. So thank you for coming on the program. My pleasure. What have you been up to? I had a very busy December. I think I played something like 21 shows in Key West, and then I flew out to do a, a show in Madison, Wisconsin on the, on the 4th of January, and then Minneapolis on the 5th. I'm not sure why I did that, but <laughs> it was an odd time of the year to go to Minneapolis, but I had a great time. And then I actually had a little hand procedure done uh, on my hands out in Oregon last week, which went very well. I have inherited this odd hand disease from my mother, which was causing my little and ring fingers in both hands to gradually kind of curl up. and was really starting to affect my guitar playing in a big way. But I had this procedure done, and now it's, now it's fine. Well, that's good. I'm glad you're back to playing music. So tell me, how would you describe your style of music? You remind me of a lot of folk artists that I enjoy. And you have a, a, a number of different flavors in your music, but I would say that the strongest word that comes through to me would be folk. But how would you describe it? I definitely have a lot of folk influences. Really, the first music I was exposed to on my own that wasn't my parents' music was probably the Beatles. But when I really spent a lot of time playing the guitar as a teenager, when I started playing the guitar, I was about 12. The time I really spent playing when I was 16, 17, 18, 19, really 
playing a lot. I really was into James Taylor, who uh, I guess would be called contemporary folk or pop. I mean, I learned to play the guitar from watching James Taylor play and reading his chord books. I can't read music. I have never had a guitar lesson at that point in my life. So I play very much like James plays in the sense that he plays the guitar like many people would accompany themselves on the piano, where his fingers on his right hand play what pianists would play with his right hand, and his thumb plays the bass line, which a pianist would play with their left hand. So I developed that kind of finger-style playing, which very much uh, I learned from, from watching James and, and other folk rock artists play as, as well. But he was definitely a big influence on my playing. As far as my writing, I mean, I, I listened to Harry Chapin a lot and, uh, you know, Jerry Jeff Walker, and then get, I got into Jimmy Buffett, you know, later in the 80s. I listened, listened to Crosby, Stills, Nash a lot. So my influence as a, a teenager and someone in my early 20s was definitely that the acoustic, acoustic rock or contemporary folk or, you know, whatever you want to call it. And over the years, I have listened to a lot of folk artists as well. But I, I would not say I was terribly influenced by the traditional folk people. The pre-1964 folk scene, you know, I was pretty young then, the, you know, Kingston Trio and and um, the Weavers, you know, the real traditional folk people. One of the things that Jeff and I were talking about prior to us having this interview, we were talking about your voice. And you have a very unique voice. It's very distinct. I happen to like it a lot. But I've never really heard that many people that that sing the same way that you do. So tell me, who were your influences as far as vocally? I have to laugh because... I have never been a fan of my own singing. It just never came easily to me. And I did play in a band in high school and I sang, but I played bass guitar in a band for four years in the late 70s, early 80s, and they literally would let me sing one song. <laughs> so singing has always been an enormous struggle for me. I did take vocal lessons from a really talented teacher in Key West for two years. I went every week. But he was really from, he was from Manhattan and was from the opera scene, and he really didn't have a lot of use for popular music. But he did teach me a lot of technique and so forth. But grew up listening to a lot of people like James Taylor. But I just struggled to sing the best I can with what I, you know, whatever gift I have, which is not much. And there's a lot of people that I'd like to sing like, but I don't really think I sing like any of them. But it's just never come very easy to me. I think one thing I've learned from other people who are very successful and talented artists, like Jimmy Buffett, like John Prine, or a number of other, you know, artists that wouldn't necessarily consider to have great voices in the classical sense, but express a song with their voice that's awesome. I mean, Jimmy Buffett is a master at that. He expresses a song he expresses his ballads with his voice like no one else can do. That's what I strive for. I try to express the song as well as I can with the gifts that I have. And I never try to reach too far because I know I just don't have the gift to sing very high notes or very long to sing notes. And so I just try to express the song in as, as relaxed a way as I can. And... <laughs> Well, I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit, because I was playing your music for an aunt of mine, and 
one of the things that she said was, wow, that guy has a really great voice. It's very unique. I am lucky that for some odd reason, as I get older, I am fortunately getting better. Uh, my pitch is better, and a lot of my friends are having problems where their voice is actually going downhill. So I do feel blessed that for some odd reason I am singing better now than I have sung in my life. And I don't know why that is. I don't know uh, if I've just, am, at this point, uh, am more relaxed when I sing or I've just basically stopped fighting it and just letting it go. I don't know why that is, but I actually was thinking to a, watching a James Taylor video the other night that I happened to pick up, and he's singing the best of his life right now, I think. He's amazing. I'm, but I appreciate the compliment, and I, I, all I can say is I do the best I can. Moving along to your newest album, the new live album, A Night on the Beach, from Little Flock Music, I was wondering how the idea to do a live album came across. It says on the album jacket, thanks to J.L. Jameson for the idea. But tell us a little bit about the recording of this album. I had thought about a number of people because I've released four studio albums. I've had a number of people over the last year or two seen a lot of my shows live say, hey, have you thought about putting out a live album? So I started thinking about it, and I was having breakfast down in Pepe's Cafe one morning with, with J.L. Jamison. Uh, if folks don't know J.L., he's, he's worked for Jimmy for, God, 20 years or more, and the stage manager out on the road and you know runs the studio and books a lot of the entertainment at Margaritaville. So I was talking to J.L. about, JL about where I might think about doing something like this, whether I would pick a club in town or maybe do it at the Hogs Breath in their listening room, or maybe at Margaritaville. And J.L. said, why don't you think about doing it on the big outdoor stage at the Meeting of the Minds concert, the annual, you know, Parrothead Gala in Key West. That's always a great sound system. You've always got a great band there that night, great monitor mix. As long as you don't have a, a nightmare with the weather, you know, you generally have a thousand people there or more, enthusiastic listeners, and why not take a stab at it there? So I discussed it with my engineer, producer, and uh, we agreed it would be a little bit of a, a, a tightrope act in the sense that you can't count on the weather. If it happened to blow 40 miles an hour that night, it would cause all kinds of havoc and or rain. But we just decided to go for it. I thought to myself, if we don't get an album out of it, that's fine. Maybe I'll get a few songs. Never really expected to get the full album out of it like this. So to record an event like that uh, one time and and get the whole performance on tape where there were there were uh, no mistakes that couldn't be tweaked in the mix was pretty extraordinary. A lot of your listeners may know that most live albums that they buy by a major artist are generally recorded over the course of six, seven, eight performances, and then they're they're edited together to sound like one performance. They take the best songs from multiple performances and then edit them into one smooth CD. We just did this in one shot, and uh, believe me, I felt extremely lucky. We had no chance to rehearse because a couple of the band members couldn't get in until two hours before the show because of the storms. And Really, it was JL's idea to record out there on the beach there was a lot of great talent on the stage that night, but there was a lot of luck involved. And the engineer, Danny Simpson, did a, an unbelievable job mixing it. Well, it came out great. And one song in particular that I thought was stellar 
originally from the Grand Bar Schemes album, but on the live album, A Night on the Beach, is Last Flying Boat. So tell us about that song. It's a fascinating story. Ten, twelve years ago, Pete Mayer and, and Jim and Roger and uh, producer Russ Kunkel uh, were in Key West, and they came down about a month early to write with Jimmy for songs for this album. And I had seen this documentary on the Discovery Channel called Last Flying Boat. And it was about these filmmakers that went into the jungles of Africa and they they found this old seaplane that at some point had crashed, but wasn't totally destroyed. And essentially they rebuilt it and refurbished it and they, they, they flew it out of there and made this film about it. So I worked up chord changes and some of the lyrics and I took it to Pete Mayer and I said, hey, what do you think about this? And uh, he liked it and he kind of came up with the chorus and wrote some of the uh, other lyrics with me and we demoed it and uh, and actually it, Russ Conkle, the producer, really liked it and uh, they were going to pitch it to Jimmy, I think to go on the Banana Wind album, but I can't remember, it may have been Barometer's Suit, but as it turns out, they already had a full roster of songs and Pete and I really did write it to, to pitch to Jimmy. That was the total purpose of it. It didn't make it, and uh, I've been playing it ever since. And I never was totally happy with the album cut that we recorded on Grand Bar Schemes, I guess. It, I mean, it was okay, but I, I never thought it really captured the energy that we generally play it with uh, in concert with a full band like that. So I was extremely happy with that song on this new album. One of your songs from Grand Bar Scheme that I really like is Little Blue Boat, and it reminds me of one of William Wordsworth's poems, where he mentions the uh, the spots of time. For some reason, it conjures up a couple of poems that I have read. So I was wondering if you could tell us about that song. There's an old sailing buddy of mine named Bruce McKenna, who I've sailed, oh gosh, I've sailed from New Hampshire to Florida with him. I've Sailed the coast of Maine with him many times. Uh, just recently sailed down to Martha's Vineyard in Nantucket with him back in September. And he gave me this book years ago called At First You Have to Row a Little Boat, I think is the name of it. At First You Have to Row a Little Boat. And the book is kind of a life book, but it parallels the skills and the ups and downs of sailing, and it, and it compares them to life in general. I really like this little book. I thought it was brilliant. And that concept of, of the, you know, rowing the little boat, is that really kind of gave me the idea about writing a song about a, a little sailboat. That was really the initial inspiration to, to write that. You know, it was so long ago now. I mean, I think I actually sat down and wrote that in a, in a couple of hours. And it's one of those songs that somehow just came out of my brain through my hand onto the paper. So when that happens, it's always, it's always a nice surprise. Are you a sailor yourself? Yes. When I was in high school, I was very taken with sailing. I used to read all the National Geographics about people who'd sailed, you know, transatlantic voyages in small boats. And I remember reading this this book, uh, I think it was called Tinkerbell, about a guy that sailed a 16-foot boat across the Atlantic. Uh, I think he was a reporter for the Cleveland newspaper. Uh, but I remember reading that as a teenager and I rode motorcycles when I was a teenager. When I got to be about 19 or 20, I, I sold my Triumph 650 and I took the uh, the $1,000 I had and I went out and bought a 16-foot sailboat. And 
the best sixteen hundred dollars I ever spent. A couple of years later, I bought a twenty-one footer, and then a then a twenty-three footer, and then uh, I've just met more incredible people and have had more amazing experiences sailing than any other thing I've learned to do in my life. And I'm actually thinking about buying another boat right now, actually. Well, speaking of, of boats, there's a song that you have on your album, Walking on Thin Ice, that you sing with Gove Scrivener. It's called The Doryman. It's a very interesting song, so I was hoping you could tell us about it. I live part-time up uh, in uh, near Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which is an absolutely gorgeous little spot here. And uh, there's a little harbor here uh, with a very nice marina. And in the summertime, a number of the mega yachts pass through here on their way from the Caribbean, you know, through Annapolis up to the coast of Maine and Nova Scotia. I have a very good friend who has built several wooden dories. Uh, excellent sailor and a professional boat captain and a good guitar player. And and one night we were out in his 14-foot handmade wooden dory with his little outboard and we had a couple six-packs of beer and uh, we were in this harbor with these mega yachts and uh, ended up meeting a couple of very wealthy women and uh, we're out till three or four in the morning and then, you know, four or five miles offshore in the Atlantic Ocean. Somehow we started singing the Dorymen. I said, you know, I've, got, I've just got to sit down and write this song. So the next day or two, uh, I worked like crazy on it for actually three or four days. and, and But that was the inspiration. I like the way you think. On your first album, <laughs> Too Damn Yankee, I believe you mentioned this before when I was talking to you, that this was one of the first songs you wrote. Hey, Mr. Lighthouse. That's the first song I really wrote, other than this one thing I wrote in high school, which I can't even really remember. But that was the first song I really wrote, yeah. I've written songs since that I haven't used, but that really was the first song that I wrote, and I actually was able to use it. So kind of odd that way, actually. So how was your gig at the Hog's Breath? I had a great gig, actually. It was a good crowd, sold a lot of CDs, and beautiful weather down here. So tell us about the song that you wrote with Russ Kunkel called The Smallest of Islands. Russ was down here producing an album for Jimmy Buffett, and uh, Peter Mayer had called me and uh, let, me, let me know they were coming into town. I met them for dinner at a place called Blue Heaven, and uh, Russ and I uh, got seated next to each other at dinner, and of course I was a big fan of Russ as I'd seen him play with James and Jackson Brown and, and, and a number of other people. Over the course of the month or two here, we became good friends, and uh one night late at uh, Louis' backyard in Key West, one of the great outdoor bars here, uh, something happened where it made Russ make the comment, gosh, this is the smallest of islands. I can't recall exactly the circumstances, but we said, geez, we need to write that song. So we start putting some lyrics down on paper, and we worked on it for the next couple of weeks, trading ideas back and forth, and uh, a song was born. So tell us about Russ Kunkel. What was your impression of him? Well, Russ is probably the most recorded drummer of the last 30 years. He's played with, uh, not only did he start out playing, you know, with, with uh, James Taylor for many years, but he had his own band called The Section and out of L.A. with this great bassist named Leland Sklar and played for years with Jackson Brown. He's been on tour recently with Lyle Lovett. He's, he's just played with so many people, played on, with Carol King on the Tapestry album and He's a great songwriter, and, a, and a, I think he produced three or four of Jimmy Buffett's albums. 
But really, most importantly, just a super, super nice guy. And we still chat on the phone uh, quite often, actually. And I actually am going to go to L.A. in about 10 days, and I hope to have dinner with him out there when I get out there in the middle of February. Speaking of another artist that you've written songs with and played with on many occasions, and you're a member of his Little Flock music label, tell us about Peter Mayer and how you met him. I met Pete, I believe, in 1989 when he and his brother Jim and Roger Goose came to Key West for the first time, I believe, to record the Off the Sea the Lizard record with Jimmy. And I had just moved here. I would go in and see those guys play, and at the end of the show, uh, you know, we would end up hanging out and uh, having a few drinks. I had a, a nice sailboat down here at the time, and I ended up taking those guys sailing, and we just became friends. As the years went by, we had an opportunity to write. Pete and I have probably written five or six songs together, and I've actually also written with Roger Goose. Just over the years, we've developed a really, really close friendship. I have uh, the utmost respect and admiration for Peter, not only as a songwriter, uh, but just as a great, great human being. And he's one of the real quality people on the planet. And I feel fortunate to be associated with Pete and written with him and, and to be on his record label. One of the songs on your album, Four Good Dogs, is called Heart of a Beach Town. Now, I was hoping you could tell us about that cut. I, um, the last five years, have been spending uh, quite a bit of time back in New Hampshire. I had been staying in a friend's beautiful home right on the ocean in Northampton, New Hampshire. Winter can be a nasty experience, but on the other hand, when you, you live in a place where uh, there are a lot of tourists and there's traffic problems and very little peace and quiet during the tourist season, there is something to be said for being in these great quiet towns in the winter. You know, the ocean's still there, and the blue sky, it's just its just cold, and uh, it's just something very peaceful about that. I get up one morning, and I think it was about 12 or 14 degrees, and sat in the living room of this house and watched these guys actually surfing in the dead of winter, and I, I, I wrote that song pretty much from beginning to end in, in one sitting. It's a very interesting song. Out of all these songs that you've written, I've heard a lot of artists say that it's very hard to pick one of their favorites. But what would you say are some of your favorite songs of all the ones you've written? Well, actually, Heart of a Beach Town I'm pretty fond of. I really like Lucky Enough, which is a bow that I wrote fairly recently. Writing songs, it's like having children, you know, it's hard to pick a favorite. And oftentimes the ones you've written the most recently really enjoy playing when they're new. But, of course, I've always loved Last Flying Boat, a song that I, you know, get to write with Pete. And I, I really like Smallest of Islands, which I wrote with Russ Kunkel. I really enjoy playing uh, Walking on Thin Ice and If Once You Slept on an Island. It's a, diff it's a difficult question, actually. Uh, I've got a new song I I'm uh, playing out right now. It's not been recorded yet called It's Hard to Find a Hooker on Valentine's Day, which is <laughs> you know, getting a lot of uh, positive feedback from people from that. That's not been recorded yet, so... I'm looking forward to hearing that one. When you're not doing the music thing, tell us about some of your, your hobbies. I've been a, a pretty avid sailor since I was 20 years old. I've, I've owned uh, four or five different sailboats, and I've done a lot of offshore sailing up and down the East Coast and the Caribbean, and I uh, sailed over in the Mediterranean and uh, was over there uh, actually headed back to Maine, and I transatlantic crossing when I had to fly home unexpectedly because of a, a death in the family, but uh, I, I really have always loved sailing. I, I play a lot of tennis, believe it or not, for 
someone of my size, but I play ten- a lot of tennis almost every day. I like to play a little golf. Love to travel. If I were a wealthy man, I would be globe trotting uh, all the time. I really have a, a passion for traveling and uh, wish I could do more of it. And I love to listen to music. I like to read. Kind of interested in politics. I've worked in politics, you know, off and on for a long time. So that pretty much describes what my, my leisure time entails. Have you ever played tennis with Terry Letterer? Many, many times. Terry, uh, if folks don't know, is, uh, works for us at Little Flock Records. One of the fantastic people I've known in my life, and she does an unbelievably great job for Pete and I, and she doesn't get the credit or the, the thanks that she deserves most times. But uh, It's a thankless job working for us, trust me. So many of your songs mention Key West, and you've mentioned a couple of the places that you've written songs and hung out down there. But give us some tips on places that we can go in Key West and have a good time, or maybe just relax. I'm sure when people come to Key West, they, you know, I mean, obviously we play at the Hogs Breath and Margaritaville on a pretty regular basis, and they're both great places to see original music. And, uh, you know, if that's what you want to include in your trip is to see some music, you should definitely go to those places. But there are also some other great places hidden away that uh, if you just want to go and, you know, have a, have a quiet drink or great food. I love the bar out behind the Louis Backyard restaurant. I'm actually headed tonight shortly. Another great bar that most people don't know about is the tower at Turtle Crawls. Most people going to Turtle Crawls don't realize that out back there's this tower. You you climb up this little hidden set of stairs, and there's a great bar up there that has this panoramic vista of the entire Key West Harbor. That's probably one of the best-kept secrets in, in town. I shouldn't probably be giving up my, <laughs> my drinking secrets, but even in the heart of tourist season, I can almost always go in there, and I can get a seat somewhere. Just some great places up and down the Keys, too. You know, when you get out of Key West, some great little hidden away places off the island, too. They're, they're fun. Well, you got to go to Pepe's Cafe while you're here. That's on Caroline Street. It's a great little restaurant cafe, which has definitely been one of my favorites for the 20 years I've been here. Well, you've just given us the uh, a, a good place to go, and it's not going to be a secret anymore. And so for the last question, the signature question, since this broadcast is being carried out all over the world, thanks to the powers of technology. What would you like to say to the world, Scott Kirby? Well, keep listening to music. Let's try to get along. Uh, the way the things are in the world right now, it's, just, it's a very tentative situation with all the things going on. And uh, We had a young lady come in and see us play last night from Egypt. She's a singer-songwriter and a guitarist, and, a, and she's got a Ph.D. and teaches at the university in Cairo, and it's just amazing how easy it is to get along with people when you meet them one-on-one and you have something in common. So that's, I guess, the most important thing I'd like to say. It'd, be, it'd just be great if we could all get along. Well spoken. Well, thank you so much for giving us this interview and being so understanding, and thank you for the graciousness. Ladies and gentlemen, Scott Kirby. I appreciate it, Paul. Look forward to uh, seeing you. All right. I hope I'll see you play real soon. Great. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com. Click on Support the Show. And thanks to everyone who contributes. 
Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano, The Entertainer, written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano, the traditional song, Corina, Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me. The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.